reading will be from Exodus chapter 34, verses 4 through 8. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keep steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of their fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. The greatest way that most of us could ever spend our time is to study and to contemplate the God that we worship. I don't know that there's a better, more profitable, more fruitful way to spend our time than to think about God. One of the reasons for that is because God is, by definition, the greatest being in existence. There's no one, there's nothing that's greater, that's more beautiful, that's more magnificent than He is. The song we just sang, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds, the works your hands have made. The song is about all the creation that we see and yet how God is much greater even than those things. In the passage that was just read in Exodus, the Bible speaks about how God has certain attributes. God showed those to Moses. And the reason why God tells us about himself and what he's like is because he wants us to know him. He wants us to have a relationship with him. The study of God is called theology. Theos is a Greek word for God, and logos or ology has to do with the study of something or a message about something. And so theology is a word that we use to discuss the study of God. There's no greater way that you could ever spend your time than to spend time studying who God is and what he's like. When you read the Bible, you'll find that God has attributes. They, they are characteristics and qualities in his nature. And he tells us about these and they fall into one of two categories. The attributes of God generally broadly fall into two categories. There are what are called communicable attributes, just like a communicable disease. They're shareable. Others can possess them. And then there are incommunicable attributes, attributes and characteristics that God does not share with us. We're going to talk about those incommunicable attributes tonight, but you think about communicable attributes, things that, that God possesses that we also as human beings might possess. For example, God is patient, 2 Peter 3 verse 9, and he wants us to be patient in our nature as well. God is love, 1 John chapter 4 verse 8. That's a communicable attribute because God wants you and me to be loving toward others. By this shall all men know you are my disciples if you love one another, John 13, 34, and 35. God is holy in his nature. That means he's separate from sin. He's devoted to pursuing his glory. And God tells us, you be holy as I am holy, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. So those are just a few of what we call the communicable attributes of God, ways in which we can and should be like God. 
but there are also these incommunicable attributes, and that's what this lesson will focus on this evening. There are some ways in which God is just so unfathomably above us, so different from us, that it would be well worth our while to spend a few minutes tonight thinking about these attributes of God that do not change and think about the great promise and the great hope that we have in him because this is what he's like. What is it about God that makes him so different from us? What are some things about God that, that are different from any other being and any of his creation? Let's share a few of these tonight. Number one, God is, as we say, eternal. And a definition I would give for this, you cannot add time to his existence. Everything else and everyone else you've ever met has a beginning. Every animal, every plant, all creation, and every human being, we all have a beginning. We are not eternal in the same way God is. Now, human beings and angels, the Bible teaches, will go on existing into eternity future, but we do not have an existence in eternity past. God does. That's what makes him different. That's what makes him unique. God has always been. I had a little boy ask me not very long ago, Mr. John, Mr. John, who created God? And the answer that I had to give was, God has always been. Nobody created God. He's just always been. And the Bible tells us this about him. God spends time in his word sharing this truth about himself. Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or you had ever formed the world, now think about that. The mountains are ancient by definition. They've always been here as long as the world has been here since the days of creation when God separated the land from the water. But before the mountains were formed, before God had formed the earth, from everlasting to everlasting, time past, eternity past to eternity future, you are God. He has always been and he has no beginning, he has no end. Again, in Exodus 3.14, God says to Moses, I am that I am. And he says, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God's very name in the Old Testament has to do with his self-existence. He is eternal. He just is. Nobody else is like God in that regard. Everything else was made by him. Again, in John 1, verses 1 through 3, the Bible affirms this truth. It's speaking about Jesus specifically, but it, it affirms his deity. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the, wor uh, the Word uh, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. God is eternal, he has always been, and in this case it's speaking specifically of Jesus Christ and it's saying he is everlasting in his nature. He has always existed and he always will exist and everything else is created by him and depends on him. The eternity, the eternal nature of God, you cannot add time, you can't add time in his past, can't add time in his future, you cannot add time to his existence. That's mind blowing to think about, isn't it? somebody that has always been and always will be, that's the God that we serve, that's the God that we worship, that's the God who wants to have a relationship with you. Again, Job 36, 26, behold, God is great and we know him not, the number of his years is unsearchable. Unsearchable. Nobody knows because we weren't there, God has always been. 
a second quality, incommunicable attribute of God that we think about when we study God's word is the fact that he is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And the way we would describe this is maybe to say it this way, you cannot travel to where he is not present. Listen to what the scriptures teach about God. Psalm 139 verses seven through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? It makes me, every time I read that, I think about Jonah trying to flee from the presence of the Lord in Jonah chapter uh, one, verses one through three. Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the Hebrew word for the grave, you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, I think about those people that go down to the Challenger Deep in the bottom of the Mariana Trench there in the Pacific Ocean, the deepest point in the ocean, anywhere on the planet. And even when you're that deep, even when you're several miles below the surface of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You cannot go anywhere where God is not present, where he's not there, where he's not accessible. Years ago, I flew across the ocean for the first time and I grew up, you know, in East Texas and never thought about leaving the country, but I got on an airplane and I went to London, England to have a door knocking campaign. And I remember as the plane landed on the runway, I remember thinking about the fact that God is still with me here. It was kind of amazing for me to think about. It was just the way I think. As the plane landed, here I am in a foreign country. I don't really know anybody here. I'm going to meet the brethren that I'm going to work with. But to be there and to know that wherever I go, anywhere with Jesus, I can safely go. He's omnipresent. You cannot travel to where he is not. Again, the Bible says in Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? He's asking, where are you gonna go that, you, that you're away from me, that you're apart from me, that you're separate from me? I'm everywhere. 1 Kings 8, 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house I have built. That's Solomon speaking about the temple that he had just built. He says, God, you're too big for this temple. I know that in your nature, this is not where you're going to, this is not where you're going to be confined. I know that you've promised to dwell here, but it's amazing for me to think about, Solomon says, that this temple, this building, no building can contain you. And Paul says something very similar in Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, think about that, how big he must be if he made, if he made heaven and earth. He does not live in temples or buildings made by man. He had to say that to those pagan philosophers who thought that their gods lived in certain buildings and certain temples and they had to go worship them. You cannot travel to where God is not present. Anywhere you go, God is there and he's accessible. It's amazing to think about his nature. Again, as we think about the attributes of God, independence. God does not need us and he does not need the rest of creation for anything. I know that people are emotional when funerals happen and I've, I've heard people make statements like this at funerals and if I could encourage us to, to abstain from doing this, sometimes I hear people say things like, you know, God really needed another angel. And in the first place, we don't become angels when we die. In the second place, God does not need us in the sense that he depends on us or he needs our company or he requires us. He loves us. 
Make no mistake about it. He cares about us. He paid the highest price that could ever be paid for anybody, for you and for your soul. But there is a sense in which he is independent of all of us and all of creation. That is to say, he doesn't depend on us for anything. Acts 17, 25, when Paul was preaching to those philosophers, he said, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. One of the characteristics of paganism, of idol worship, is that idol worshipers believe that they are actually feeding their gods. They bring that food and they set it before the idols or they believe that they are appeasing their gods by bringing sacrifices and their gods need these things. They require these things and they're gonna be insufficient if they don't get these from their worshipers. That's not the way the God of heaven is. He is independent. He is the one who made heaven and earth and he doesn't require us to feed him or to serve him or to do anything in order to sustain him. He's independent, we depend on him. That would be Paul's argument there in Acts 17. I'm fascinated by the prayer that Jesus makes in John 17 because as he's praying here on earth to his father in heaven, One of the things Jesus does is he remembers the past. He remembers that eternal nature of God, the eternity past. And Jesus says, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God is one, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. But God, the Bible says, is three in one. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And in this prayer, Jesus is saying that before God ever said, let there be light in eternity past, before he ever created the world and all that's in it, that God the Father and God the Son had a wonderful, healthy, happy relationship with one another. They had glory with one another. And again, how do you say God is one and three in one? It's what the Bible tells us about who God is. You've never met anybody like God. You've never met another being that is, that is as unique as he is in every way. And so here's Jesus saying, Father, glorify me with the glory that we had before the foundation of the world, before the world existed. Later in the same prayer in John 17, 24, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they, talking about the disciples, us, they whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Think about this. 1 John 4, 8 tells us God is love, but love requires two parties in order to exist. And what's being said in John 17, 24 is that God within himself, there was love, there was glory, there was partnership, there was companionship within himself even before he ever created the world. That's what Jesus is saying there in John 17, 24. God has always been love. He just wants to share his love with us, his creation. But he does not depend on us. He does not need us to provide those things for him. It's an incommunicable attribute. He's absolutely independent. He does not need food. He does not need air. He does not need companionship from us. He is independent. And yet it's mind blowing that he loves us, that he wants a relationship. He wants a connection with you more than anything else. That's what he wants. It's amazing to think of the God that we serve. Attribute number is this four, his perfection. You cannot improve him in any way. 
Everything about God is absolutely perfect. There is no way to make him more the things that he is than he already is. You can't improve him in any way. Romans eleven thirty four through 36. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? I mean, who does God need to go to to ask for advice about how to ordain a plan of salvation, how to save people from their sins? Paul goes on, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who's given something to God and served him so that God owes us? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God is absolutely perfect in all of his attributes. He's infinitely wise. He's infinitely holy. He's infinitely loving. He's got an infinite wrath. All of those things are absolutely perfect about him. And you cannot improve him in any of those ways, in any of those areas. 1 Timothy 1.17 gives this doxology, this praise. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In every bookstore, back when we used to have bookstores, on Amazon, we have a self-help section. You can Google self-help on, on your Google or on Amazon, and you can find a slew of books that'll help you to improve some aspect of your life. They'll help you to lose weight or to get stronger or to, or to think better or to think more clearly or to be more articulate. They'll help you in every aspect of your life. They'll help you with your marriage. They'll help you with your parenting. All these books are about improvement. And there are thousands of them because we recognize we're not perfect. We recognize we need to work on some areas of our lives. God never needed a self-help book. He never needed anybody to give him advice. He never needed anybody to provide counsel to him. He is perfect and infinite in his wisdom. And when we think about his word being given to us, how arrogant of us to ever try to argue with his word. And to say, God, you know, I see what you've written here, but there's a better way to do things. I don't want to do it your way. How arrogant of us to ever say something like that about this infinite, perfect God that we worship. Next, immutability. That's just a fancy word that means he doesn't change. You cannot change the attributes that make him who he is. Now, as I grow older, my hair has gotten a lot grayer. You might not believe this about me, but my hair used to be dark brown. I left a congregation that I had worked with for five and a half years, and I came back a couple years later after I'd been in Africa, and there was a sweet Christian lady in the parking lot, and she said, I wondered who that old gray-headed man was, but it's you, John. It's, our attributes change, don't they? They just do. As we get older, um, our, our personalities can change, our, our, um, the things that, that, we, that we love and that we appreciate, that we enjoy, those things can change. But these things do not change about God. You cannot change the attributes that make him who he is. Psalm 102, 25, of you, of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, the psalmist writes, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They, the heavens will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but you will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. The psalmist knew this world, this system, this is all passing away. This isn't forever, but God, you are unchanging. Even the world itself is gonna change, but God himself is not. Again, immutability, Malachi 3 verse 6, 
I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I do not change. I don't alter in who I am and what makes me who I am. James 1.17 speaks about every good thing uh, and every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I believe when James wrote that passage in James 1.17, he had the moon in mind. The moon constantly changes as you look at it in the night sky. Every night it's a little bit different. Every night there's a different shadow on the moon. But when it comes to God, he doesn't change like the moon does. God is constant. He's always the same. And he's always giving good things, James argues in this passage. He's consistent. He's unchanging. He's immutable. Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the ages began. God doesn't lie. He always tells the truth. Everything he ever says is absolutely true. He does not deceive. He does not make false promises. He does not, he does not say anything that's false. And the reason is because that's who he is. If he did lie, if he were to say something false, he would stop being who he is. It's bound up in his identity, in this attribute of his unchanging nature and his holy nature. God doesn't deceive. He can't because he'd stop being God if he were to do so. The immutability of God, the unchanging nature of God. Think about idolatry again. Paganism that looks at all of these other gods, these other gods are capricious. They can change. They can, they can make up different ideas on the, on the fly. And they might make a promise to somebody, but think about some of the legends you might have read about these false gods and, and how these gods would say one thing to a man, but then deceitfully go around and undermine what this man was given the objective of doing. We tend to make gods like ourselves. That's what human beings do. When we invent gods, we invent gods that are like us. We lie and we deceive and we cheat. This is a God, the God of the Bible, who doesn't do any of those things. He's immutable. As you think about who God is and what he's like, he is omniscient. That means he knows everything. You cannot tell him anything he does not already know. When you have a conversation in your house, have you noticed how all of a sudden you start to, you know, talk about peanut butter and all of a sudden you start getting ads for peanut butter on Google and Facebook? Have you notice how that happens? And you think, that's kind of weird. They know everything about you. Trust me. They're listening. Your phone is listening to you. Your computer is listening to you. And all of that data is being collected. It's being stored in some warehouse somewhere with terabytes upon terabytes and exabytes of information. But even then, as much as those big tech companies might know about you, and as much as they might have identifying markers about you, they don't know everything. God knows everything. He knows what you've been searching on Google. He knows where you go when you go on the internet. He sees. And sometimes we kind of fool ourselves like the fool in the book of Psalms who says, there is no God. We kind of fool ourselves. Eh, you know, I don't really think God sees me in this moment. He does and he knows and he remembers. 
He remembers where we're going and what we're doing and who we're talking to and how we're acting. He remembers those things. There are things that I have done in my life that I have long forgotten about. And sometimes somebody will bring it up to me and do you remember when you did this? No, I really don't remember doing that. God does. Perfect memory. He sees the entirety of our lives and he knows in infinite meticulous detail where we've gone, what we've said, what our attitudes were. You cannot tell him anything that he does not already know. Psalm 139, one through four. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Think about that. You can, you can be up in a high rise building looking down at all the ant-like people down there on the street. God can search every one of their thoughts and knows from afar what they're thinking. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all together. You know what I'm about to say even before I say it. It's amazing to think about what God is like. 1 John 3.20, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. He knows it all. Omniscience, Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is why people need the gospel. This among many reasons. We need the gospel because we might have fooled people into thinking that we're really good, that we're really doing, you know, we're living our lives in the right way and we don't mess up and we might have fooled a lot of people into that. God knows the truth. And the reason why you need the blood of Jesus Christ in your life, and the reason why you need the cross and the reason why we can sing songs like I need thee every hour is because of this right here. Because God knows everything and he does not forget. And at the same time, he loves us. And he says, I want to have a relationship with you and I will interpose the blood of my son Jesus so that I can. I still love you. I know what you've done and I know what you've thought and I know where you're, where, where you're searching on the internet. I know all those things and I still love you and I still want a relationship with you. But he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Matthew 6, 8, do not be like them. Like the Gentiles, Jesus says when you pray, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. He still wants you to ask though. He still wants you to ask and seek and knock, but he knows what we need. And sometimes even we don't know what we need. God does. Can't tell him anything he does not already know. By the way, this does not mean that we shouldn't pray. That's exactly the opposite of Jesus' point in Matthew 6. Jesus says, Sometimes the prayers that we offer have more to do with aligning our hearts and our lives with God. I mean, we're not informing of him, him of things that he doesn't know and he's not aware of, but we're aligning our hearts and minds and our wills with God's. Not my will, but yours be done. And God also promises to answer our requests. And that's important. There are some things that God withholds until we ask him. That's what the history of prayer proves. Again, omniscience. The Bible says in Romans 2.16, on that day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I don't know what that day is going to be like exactly, but it's going to be a day in which all of our secrets are exposed. Everything that we've hidden, everything that we've tried to sweep under the rug, all of it gets exposed. 
because God's going to judge the secrets of men on the day of judgment. He's omniscient. Next, ownership. When we think about incommunicable attributes, ways in which God is unique and different from us and will never be like him, you do not possess anything that he did not ultimately create. And because that's true, the Bible says that God owns it all. You and I are not owners of our possessions. We are merely stewards of our possessions. There is a difference. Think about what Psalm 50 writes, Psalm 50 verses 10 through 12. Every beast of the forest is mine. This is God talking. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. They belong to me, says the Lord. It's mine. I created it. You're living in my world, but it belongs to me, rightly and ultimately. Job 41 verse 11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God's making this claim. And you might work hard, work hard and accumulate a lot of possessions, but you're still not an owner, not in this sense of those possessions. What did you do with the blessings I put into your hands? God will ask us at the last day. Psalm 100 verse 3, we know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Even we belong to God. Not just our possessions, but ourselves. To live an ungodly, wicked life is to rebel against him, to reject him, to say, I don't want to be owned by you. But he created us. He created our eternal souls. He's the one that has the right to tell us, this is what I expect my creation to be used for. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. When we think about the amazing, awesome God that we serve, God owns it all. And the best thing we could ever do with our lives would be to live our lives as stewards of what God has blessed us with, to live our lives for him. Incommunicable attributes, ways in which God is different from us. There are more than these. I've just shared seven or so with you tonight. It might be a great Bible study for you to read and ask yourself, what are some other ways in which God is completely unlike us and yet still wants to have a relationship with us? You'll never spend better time in your study than asking the question, what is God like? And you'll never spend better time than praising and worshiping him for the ways in which he reveals himself to us and tells us who he is and what he's like. What an amazing God we serve. He wants you to come to him if you're not a Christian. If we can help you obey the gospel by repentance and baptism, you can put on Christ. If we can help you to do that tonight, if we can help you by praying for you, God hears prayers and God answers prayers. He knows everything, but he still wants us to come and petition him. If we can help you in those ways, why don't you make your way down the aisle while together we stand and while we sing.